So this week in Queens, New York, there's a tennis tournament taking place. I'm sure some of you know this. It's called the U.S. Open. And a couple of nights ago, Serena Williams, the great female tennis player, played what is probably, what will probably be her final match of her career. Now, what a lot of people have been saying is that Serena seems different. Time has changed her. She's not quite as prickly as she used to be. She seems lighter. She's playing with a sense of freedom. In fact, she said in an interview that she now feels like she has nothing to lose. She's been through so much in her life, and of course, all of this has played out in public, her struggles, her disappointments, also her great successes, also her mistakes, her injuries, so many things about her personal life, the ways that some people have supported her and other people have judged her. So many things have happened to her, but this week she seemed to have let go of a lot of that. And so on one level, as I was watching Serena in these interviews, she seemed like a different person, more mature, more thoughtful, more free. And yet on another level, she seemed the same. In fact, she was interviewed <clears throat> on the court after she had just beaten the number two player in the world, very impressive victory. And she had this great quote, uh, the person asked her, are you surprised that you're playing so well? And Serena said, I'm just Serena. As if to say, I'm the same person. You might think that I'm different, and in some ways maybe I am, but I'm also the same person that I've always been. And so here's my question to you. When people go through experiences that change them, what is different about them? And what's the same? Think about yourself as you have aged, as you, as you have been through things in your life, are there things that are the same about you? And are there other things that are different about you? And now I'll give you an image. Imagine, if you will, a potter sitting at their wheel. They've just made a pot out of clay, but they're not quite happy with it. And so they pour some water on it, they squeeze it, they take away its shape, they squeeze it into a lump, they put it back on the wheel, and then they start turning again. And in a few minutes, they have a pot that looks different. But it's the same clay. Fundamentally, it's the same substance, but it's in a different shape. So keep that image in mind as we look at our reading. We are reading from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a great prophet in ancient Israel. And in the passage that we're going to read, God invites Jeremiah to go to the house of a potter because God has something he wants him to see. Let us listen to what God's Spirit is saying to us and to the church. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Come, go down to the potter's house. And there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as seemed good to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done, says the Lord? Just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. 
But if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. And at another moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good that I had intended to do it, to do to it. Now, therefore, says, uh, say to the people of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, look, I am a potter shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Turn now, all of you, from your evil way and amend your ways and your doings. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts on this, your holy word, be acceptable in your sight and life-giving to us and through us as your people. Amen. The image of the potter appears all over scripture because pottery was a ubiquitous reality in the ancient world. Go into any museum that has items from antiquity and you will see a lot of clay pottery, pots and tablets and figurines. And so perhaps it wasn't strange to Jeremiah that God asked him to go down to the house of a potter and to watch this artist working at his wheel. God says to Jeremiah, do you see that potter with his clay? That's me and you. That's how I am. I am the potter. You and all the people of Israel are clay in my hands. I created you from the dirt. You are my creation. And then he asks a very provocative question. Can I not do with you just as this potter has done? In other words, just as his potter has destroyed the pot that he had made, can I not destroy you? Now, there are mixed messages here. On the one hand, there's a very, very nice message to this metaphor. God has us in his hands. It's like the old children's song. He's got the whole world in his hands. But on the other hand, this means we better watch out. Because he tells Jeremiah, at one moment I may declare concerning a nation that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And so perhaps the children's song should go, he's got the whole world in his hands, but if you don't obey him, he will utterly destroy you. (laughs) Before you jump to conclusions, let me tell you about the context of this story. This passage is set in a time in which there were a lot of problems in the nation of Israel. They had lost a great king, King Josiah, who had led them in a time of peace and prosperity and faithfulness, but the kings after Josiah were not faithful. And by the time of Jeremiah the prophet, there had been a steady moral decline in the nation of Israel. The Israelites had turned away from God, or to use the language of this passage, they were rejecting the artist who had created them. Instead of allowing God the potter to shape them into his vision of their potential, their vocation on earth, they were trying to make themselves. They didn't want to be in God's hands. Now the problem with this is that it's an impossible goal. C.S. Lewis once compared human beings to characters in a play that has been written by God, and he said that it would simply be absurd for Hamlet to try to be Shakespeare. It just doesn't work that way. A character cannot become 
a writer. And yet, isn't that what so many of us try to do? We try to be in control of the play. We think that we can write our own story, not knowing that we are merely clay on the potter's wheel. What does an artist do when his clay has spoiled? This is where the passage gets a little dark. Because this is when God says, if this clay rebels against me, I have no choice but to throw it back on the wheel. And you can imagine the potter pouring water over this clay, wetting it, smashing it on the wheel, and then starting to spin all over again. But there's a critical point here, and to me it's the most powerful aspect of this metaphor. Here's the point. The clay is the same. God doesn't throw the clay out. He could, but he doesn't. He preserves the clay. This spoiled clay, he doesn't throw it away. He puts it back on the wheel and he reworks it. Can you see how important this is? When God says he wants the Israelites to change, he's affirming their fundamental goodness because only good clay is worth saving. Only good clay is worth all the time and energy and agony that God is spending trying to reform them. I can't stress how important this distinction is. There are so many people who believe that they are simply rotten to the core. And ironically, this makes it harder for them to change their lives in positive ways. Because if you don't understand that your clay is fundamentally good clay then you won't understand the need to repent. Because to repent, to admit that you've made mistakes, to ask God to change you, that requires an understanding of your goodness, not your badness. In modern language, the difference here is the difference between shame and guilt. If you understand that on the most basic level you are a beloved child of God, then when you make mistakes, you feel guilt. You know that you have not lived up to your potential. You have not lived up to the goodness that is who you really are. And your guilt then can actually bring you closer to God because it makes you go to him and apologize and seek his forgiveness. On the other hand, if you don't know that your clay is basically good, then when you make mistakes, you feel shame. And that does not make you go to God. It makes you hide from God. Do you remember Genesis? What happens when Adam eats the fruit? He goes and he hides. And when God asks him what he's doing, he says, I saw that I was naked and I felt shame. Here's the difference. Guilt is the belief that you've made a mistake and that's a very healthy human emotion. Shame is the belief that you are a mistake. Guilt is the belief that your clay, while fundamentally good, has become spoiled and needs to be put back on the wheel and reworked. Shame is the belief that your clay is helpless and should be thrown out. And what we see in the Bible is that God never throws clay away. He never gives up on his people. And therefore, when someone changes, they're always both different and the same. Here's how Thomas Merton describes it. He says that being changed by God means the death of our ordinary selves in order that we may live on a new level, and yet paradoxically on this new level we recover our old 
ordinary selves. The new person is totally transformed, and yet they're the same person. Can you see the good news in this? It means that no matter how misshapen the clay of your life becomes, there is hope because you were created in God's image, and there is literally nothing that will ever change the fact that deep within you there is goodness. Faith is not replacement, it's renewal. You are the same, but different. I want to say one more thing about this. Your past, no matter how difficult, should not be erased. It should be transformed. Everybody has hard things in their past. There are some things that people believe are so hard that if we could simply forget them, we would. If we could get a surgeon to remove some part of our brain that holds on to that memory of that bad experience, we would ask them to excise that part of our brain. Just get rid of that part of my past. I don't ever want to think about it again. But that's not what God wants. God wants to take those experiences and transform them into ways of helping others. That's what he did with the Israelites. The Israelites are always in trouble with God, and yet God never abandons them. Why? Because they're God's chosen people. He has promised that he's never going to get rid of them. He's always going to continue to try to work with them because of their goodness, not their rottenness. The Israelites become a metaphor for all of humanity to show us what it looks like to be in a relationship with God. And therefore, their mistakes, their struggles, all of these painful things that they've experienced, God doesn't throw them away. He writes them down in this book so that our lives can be changed too. You see, the goal in life is not to simply eliminate suffering. It's to transform it into something useful. And here is the truth. The most useful people in the world are the ones who've suffered. I'll repeat this because I think it's so important. The most useful people in the world are the ones who have suffered. But you already know that intuitively. Let me just ask you a question. If you were going through a hard time, whom do you need to speak to? Presumably, you need to speak to someone who has also been through a hard time and come out the other side. If you're going through a painful divorce, would you rather speak to someone who has never been divorced or to someone who has been through an awful divorce and overcame it and is stronger because of it? Who would be more useful to you and therefore isn't it the pain itself that has been transformed into something good? Put on the potter's wheel and reshaped into something beautiful. These people, these saints in our lives, they're different than they were, and yet in a really important way, they're the same. And I'll even bet that if you look closely at their clay, you can see marks of the past, cracks and dents and stains, and more than anything else, fingerprints. And what these fingerprints show is that there was a potter who was at work in their clay. They were touched by the hand of the potter who turned their mourning into dancing, who took off their sackcloth and clothed them with joy, in the words of the psalmist. I'll leave you with one more question.
Can you give the potter your pain so that he can put it on his wheel and transform you into a light to the world? Let's end in prayer. God, we thank you for the way that you pursue us without fail, always loving us, always seeking not to reject us, but to rework us into the image of Christ your Son. In his name we pray, amen.